Thank you very much, Rosalind. Welcome, everyone. Keep your uh, Bibles right there in John chapter 8, verse 48 to um, 59. We're going to be there today uh, finalizing um, the series in the Gospel of John, well, for a while anyway, and um, we're going to see this climactic part of this passage, right? So just to remind ourselves before we go into three points and a prayer, um, where we are at in the Gospel of John, remember, in the past chapter, we have seen Jesus Um, being rejected and being mocked by the Pharisees. This chapter, other than the first 11 verses, really is one long debate between Jesus and the Jews. They are mocking him and they're attacking him in ways where we can't even imagine. And we might be tempted to think, well, this is not who we are. This is not the kind of people that we are, that we would reject Jesus. But we are seeing the representatives of who we are. This is humanity encountering the true and sovereign God. This is humanity showing itself to be the kind of people that we are, that when God came as the light of the world, we were still in the dark, and we are in the dark apart from him. And what would we do when he comes? What would we do when we encounter him? Here's what we would do. And it's a sobering reflection of what's about to take place because this part of this chapter is a climactic portion of this debate where the Jews and the people of the world, the Pharisees who are seeking to persecute him, are no longer veiling their hatred for Jesus in subtle theological attacks or opinions, right? At first in chapter 3, we saw that they um, sent someone else and representing them, Nicodemus, right? And Nicodemus was still really subtle in his attacks of Jesus. What do you mean that you need to be born again? Can a person go back into his mother's womb? What do you mean that you can't see the kingdom of God, right? They were still attacking Jesus with minute theological specification and, and, and minute theological points. And in chapter 5 and chapter 7, they were still trying to capture Jesus with the law, asking him about the Sabbath. Aren't you violating the Sabbath, Jesus? Chapter 8, though, we're going to see, and again, this all climaxes up at the cross, right? We're going to see all these subtle attacks, kind of just disappear and reveal itself in its fullness of pure hatred, malice, and lies. Suddenly, we see us for who we are, and we see the Pharisees and the Jews and the world for who they really are, not interested opinion makers or seekers or genuine see genuinely seeking out the Christ. They are the ones who cannot bear the truth of God. They reveal themselves to be what they really are, and who their father truly is, not God and not Abraham. So we're going to see this sober reminder in this text. There are going to be three uh, points from the sermon. The first point is going to be about the world of the devil. The second is going to be about the devil's lie. And the third will be about the I am in the world, what it means that Jesus Christ is the I am. And remember, the Gospel of John is all about that motif of Jesus being the light of the world. Everyone else is in the dark. Jesus being the singular light entering into the darkness, but the darkness had not overcome him. Now, the first two points of our sermon today will be a little bit more brief. Um, the, the major part of the sermon will be on, on point three. With that being said, let us pray. Father God, we are sorely aware of how much we have fallen short We lay all our worries, Lord God, at your feet. We are fighting demons, Lord God, both within and without. And we are reminded, Lord God, in our songs today to look to you. That um, the Bible is not ultimately about us, though it, Jesus Christ saves us, Lord God. We are going to look to you, for you are our hope. 
You are our Savior. You are our redemption. So, Father, help us today as we go through this passage. Help us listen, for listening is an arduous work. And through the temptations of the world, Lord God, might be overwhelming. You might sustain us, and you might make your word clear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, two points. The first two points are going to come together. The world of the devil and the devil's lie. We're going to see, friends, in this passage that the gospel of John is telling us that the world flips the truth right upside down, right? We saw that from verse 44 to verse 47, Jesus is saying that your father is not Abraham. Your father is not God. Your father is of the devil. That's a serious claim that these Pharisees, these religious leaders who are coming across to Jesus Christ are not coming to him in sincerity. They're not coming to him representing God, but instead they're coming to him representing who their father truly is, which is the devil. And Jesus is saying to them, you do not truly know God, for you do not know me, Jesus is saying. You do not truly know yourself, for if you knew yourself, you would know that you would die in your sins. And whatever the Pharisees and the Jews are going to come up to him now in verse 48 is going to reveal that Jesus is telling them the truth. That Jesus is telling them who they really are. And Jesus is being vindicated in his words because Jesus has now already said, you will lie and you will murder. And at the end of this chapter, that's exactly what happens. The Pharisees and the Jews will lie because they reverse the truth of Jesus. They call out his truth and say that that's a lie. And instead, they will reverse it and claim him to be not truly God, but a demon. And they will claim that they are righteous. They deny who God truly is. They deny who Jesus is, right? Look at verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon. Jesus answered him, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. What did Jesus just claim? Jesus just claimed beforehand that he comes to represent the true father. And Jesus just came to them identifying who they really are, that they are actually coming not from the truth, but from the lies of the devil. And the first thing we see in 48 is exactly a denial of everything Jesus had just said. The Jews answered him and he, they said, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? That's a serious charge. That's a serious charge. A Samaritan, calling Jesus a Samaritan, as Tazar mentioned last week, is, um, this, it's a racial slur. It's, it's essentially saying that Jesus is not of a pure blood. Jesus is a mug blood, as, as Tazar mentioned last week. We don't even know who his father is, right? So he is now being persecuted and saying, you are not of the pure race. You're not a true Jew. Not only that, they are saying you have a demon. This is blasphemy of the highest order. Everything that Jesus is saying, that he is the true light, they reverse. No, you are the darkness. Everything that Jesus is saying, that he's the only one who's pure, they reverse and saying, no, you were born out of sexual immorality. You are a Samaritan. We cannot trust you. So Jesus' words in verses 44 and 47 is vindicated precisely in verse 48. And that's exactly what the devil wants us to believe today. The world of the devil and I mentioned uh, a few weeks ago, or uh, two months ago now, that spiritual warfare, friends, is not about encountering demons outside of us in physical manifestations. 
the devil is not outside of us. We know that we're not afraid of him. Every time the devil shows up in scripture, he shows up closer than we think. He shows up closer in our heads, in our hearts, tempting us. He's a slanderer, the accuser, and the liar, right? The world of the devil lies to us and trades in the truth for a lie and the lie for the truth. And it is for sure wanting us to believe that Jesus is not the Christ. All of the attempts of the devil is pointing to that singular point. Jesus is not the Christ. This is what John is going to repeat later on. If you read the letter of 1 John, which is essentially an application of the Gospel of John, as John writes to many churches, he says that this is the Antichrist. This is the devil's lie, in other words. This is the Antichrist. Anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ... That's the Antichrist. The Antichrist is not some future figure. The Antichrist is not something that is outside of us, that is threatening us in some future impending doom, in some kind of apocalyptic judgment. The Antichrist is not something that we're so wary of as if it's going to come out from outside. The, the, the Antichrist, friends, is all among us. It is any source, any reason any person, any thought, any cause that might cause us to deny that Jesus is the Christ. That's what John is iterating in 1 John 2, 24 to 27. It's what John is saying here once again. And that takes place in many forms. It takes place in many forms. What causes you to doubt Christ today? Might it be a theological judgment? Might it be a theological doubt where you might be saying, how can God who is divine, who is omnipotent, who is all-powerful, who is eternal, who is infinite, claim to be a man who eats and drinks, who sleeps, who is weary? Is that your theological doubt? Might it be that you're doubting that Jesus is the Christ because you believe in your own autonomy. If Jesus is the Christ, then I need to change my life. I can't change my life. I want to keep my lifestyle. If Jesus truly is the Christ, then I need him. But I can't take that. So you say, no, Jesus can't be the Christ. Might it be a doubt about the miracles of God where you might say to yourself, no, science, experience, sense perception tells me nobody can be raised from the dead. Jesus can be who he claims he is. What the Bible, friends, is telling us is this. Whatever it is that is in your heart, whatever it is that is causing you to doubt, whatever it is that is a practice or a thought or a belief or a judgment, whatever it be, whether it be theological, scientific, or moral, friends, if you now have, still have a doubt that Jesus is the Christ. That is the devil's work and that is the singular devil's lie because he doesn't want you to be saved. That's the judgment that Jesus is rendering upon these people. Do you know that all of us live and breathe, we swim in spiritual warfare? The devil is wanting us to not believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the role of the devil. That's the devil's lie. And Jesus is coming into this scenario. Jesus is coming into this head-on. And instead, he doesn't defend himself. 
and we're going to go straight to the I am in the world. Again, we're going to spend most of the time in this point. Jesus doesn't defend himself, but instead he merely says that I do not have a demon. He denies it, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. He's secure in his identity because he knows that he is the I am. He doesn't need to defend himself. Instead, he just simply tells them the truth. He doesn't feel threatened, in other words. He knows his identity. I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And I do not see my own glory. There's one who seeks it, and he is a judge. He entrusts himself to the father. And remember, friends, why are the Jews, by the end of this chapter, and by the end of this book, going to stone and throw him to the cross? Because of statements like these. There's no singular passage in the Gospel of John that is as clear as this, where Jesus says in verse 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the Greek is even more forceful. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, before Abraham came to be, before Abraham existed, I am. And the Greek there points to the naming of God in the Old Testament, where God says to Moses, here is my name. I am who I am. Jesus could entrust himself to the Father because he understands that before the foundation of the world, before the creation of anything else, before Abraham came to be, Jesus already was. He was already eternally divine. He already had his Father. And they existed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in complete sovereignty. They loved one another. That complete glory and splendor. This is the father of Jesus. He's claiming that though he's not yet 50 years old, completely against the mockeries of the Jews, he is showing them now and telling them plainly, I am the God of the Old Testament. I am the God who walked with Adam. I am the God that, tra- that, that Moses was afraid to come near. I am the God sovereign over time and space itself. I am the God, in other words, that causes you to wake up in the morning. I am the God that causes you to have breath. I am the God who keeps your eyes open. I am the God who sustains your every heartbeat. The I am who I am, self-defining, self-acting. Nothing can compel him to do what he does, completely sovereign. And right before them is this frail man, Jesus Christ. Frail, fragile, vulnerable to the stones that they might hurl at him. And he's claiming this. Before Abraham came to be, I am. I have a unique relationship with the Father. I existed before the world came to be. This is who I am. And therefore, I don't need your value. I don't need your opinions of me to be well. I don't need to defend myself. Instead, I have someone else who defends my honor, who seeks my glory, the one who's glorified me from before the earth began. And he's going to repeat that in John chapter 17. Jesus is saying here, I don't need to vindicate myself because there's someone else who vindicates me. And that's the Father. And so I can come into this mission in the world and I can come in complete security that my father will glorify me. My father will vindicate me. That's his security. But friends, notice the irony because we know how the story ends. We know how the story ends. Jesus is saying, I don't need to glorify me. I don't need to vindicate me. I don't need, in other words, 
for you to def- for me to defend myself, for me to be vindicated right here and now, because there's one who will vindicate me. And what happened to Jesus as he entrusted his soul to the Father, the Father who's been with him from the very beginning? What happened? He was forsaken. He prayed to this father who he now tells them will vindicate him. Just a few chapters later, he's going to say, Lord, where are you? If this cup could be passed away from me, vindicate me, Lord God, but not my will and your will be done. But instead, the father turned aside, was silent as Jesus Christ was subjected not to the vindication of the father. No angel rescued him. No clarion of God's voice lifted him out. His prayers came unanswered so that he might go to the cross. What irony. Do you have unanswered prayers? You sometimes wonder why it is that you could go on for weeks, for months, maybe years. Lord God, why do you not answer me? And could it be that God does not answer your prayers? Because he wants you to understand that there's someone else whose ultimate prayers were unanswered for you. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father, and he heard nothing back. Why? Why? Because, look at verse 52. Jesus said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. We're going to go back to that later. And of course, they're perplexed by this. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? Even Abraham died. And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? But Jesus answered, again, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. And the irony of that is stark. Again, Jesus will not be glorified until after the cross. Why? Look at verse 58. 56, sorry. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. And he sighed and was glad. Why was Jesus' prayers unanswered? Why is it that in our unanswered prayers, we are called back to point ourselves back to Jesus Christ, whose prayers were unanswered for you? So that you and me, friends, could be with Abraham one day. How come Abraham gets to rejoice? This is, by the way, contradicting what the Jews are saying, right? The Jews are saying, Abraham died, and Jesus is saying, no, if you abide in my word, you would never taste death. What's the proof of that? Abraham's still alive. Abraham's still alive. You thought Abraham died? He kept my word because it was him who walked with Abraham. It was him who went through the animals. It was him who was going to be cut on Abraham's behalf. It was him who covenanted, who promised with Abraham. And why could Abraham be in heaven right now watching this and rejoicing and so that you and I could be with Abraham one day and you and I could rejoice with Abraham even today? Who was Abraham? Who did Jesus claim the Jews were? From below. We saw that from verses 41 onwards in this chapter. They are from below, Jesus is from above. But who right now is above and who is below? 
the one who's supposed to be from above, Jesus Christ, the only pure one who was with the Father, had enjoyed the Father's presence, was pure in bliss. Suddenly he was below, suffering. But Abraham, what's he doing? What's he doing in heaven, rejoicing? Who was Abraham? He was a pagan, called out of Babylon. Who was Abraham? He was impatient, adulterer, owned slaves, almost sold his wife off to a neighboring foreign nation. A coward, in other words, didn't trust in the promises of God, whose wife laughed right in the promises of God, right in front of his angels, and really in front of Jesus himself. Who was Abraham from below? Who was Abraham? A sinner like you and me. And where is Abraham now? In heaven, rejoicing. Have you thought of that? Do you realize that you too would be with Abraham rejoicing? Do you realize the kind of things that the man of sorrows had to go through so that Abraham might rejoice? And I don't think this is a a kind of glee, forgetting yourself kind of rejoicing as if Abraham was just clapping and laughing. No, Abraham knew the cost that it would take on Jesus Christ. Abraham saw that God had to be cut because God was the one who went through the animals cut in half in Genesis. He rejoiced because someone else died in his place. This is a sober rejoicing, friends, because in the cross of Christ, in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, friends, it's not merely the triumph that earns your rejoicing. It is a condemnation of sin. This is who you are. That's so that you might rejoice. So that you might not be forsaken. The man from above became the man from below. So that we who are from below might become the man above rejoicing with Abraham. And Jesus is under, underpinning this point. Before Abraham was, I am. This is the great exchange. This is the gospel. In other words, Jesus is the one sovereign over death and life. Jesus is the one who comes as life himself, and he is promising you now, friends, that you could rejoice with Abraham too. He's promising you, friends, that though you might die, you will never see or taste death. Notice in verse 51, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews modified that a little bit because in verse 52, they say, What do you mean if you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Jesus doesn't correct them. He's amplifying it, in other words. He doesn't correct them. He accepts this claim. He's saying, if you abide in my word, you won't merely not see death. You will never taste death. I am the sovereign one over life itself. I am life in the flesh. And if you abide in my word, if you cling to him, if you understand that he is just and his judgment is what matters, not your own, not the world's. If you abide in this, if you understand and you've placed your faith in him and he resides in you, you would never 
taste death. What a gospel, friends. And whoa, we are so afraid of death. We spend so much of our time agonizing over death. But if this is true, that Jesus is saying, if you abide in him, he saw and tasted death for you and me. If this is true, friends, and you would never taste death, you don't need to deny this reality. You don't need to deny that you will one day, in fact, die a physical death. You don't need to deny or distract yourself from that fact. You can face it head on, in other words, without any fear, anxiety, or distractions. You don't have to deny yourself from this. In other words, you don't have to spend, we spend all our time, for example, for men, we spend all of our time in our work distracting ourselves. We can't bear the thought that one day we might die and our legacies will be completely forgotten. We invest in our children thinking maybe there my meaning and my immortality would be secure. Maybe in my work and whatever I leave behind there, that's where my identity is. That's how I'm going to live on forever. We spend so much time in the gym trying to reverse the effects of age or in cosmetic advancements and investments, seeking to lie to ourselves as if one day we will not be old, as if we will stay young forever. So we spend millions of dollars, all of our time, Investing in things that don't last. Investing in things that don't ultimately matter. Or we distract ourselves. We distract ourselves. We throw ourselves into our work. We throw ourselves into our relationships. We throw ourselves into drunkenness, right? Tim Keller has an awesome um, interpretation of that passage in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul says, Do not be drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit. And a lot of us might be tempted to interpret that as, well, this is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It looks like getting drunk. No, it does not. And that's a wrong interpretation of that passage. It's like what Keller is saying as he was reading that passage is this. You see, most of us do certain things in the weekends. Most of us do things with alcohol and abuse because we want to forget reality. We want to forget reality for one night, for one moment, for one second. Because we realize when we come home on Friday and there is nothing else but silence that cowers over us, there is nothing else but death impending upon us. And we cannot shake that thought. And so in our futile counterfeiting attempts to, to counterfeit a joyous self-forgetfulness, we forget ourselves by what? Abusing certain substances that we might forget for a single moment who we are, finite creatures destined for a physical death. That's not what the Bible says we should be doing. Secularism says you could become joyous by forgetting reality. Empty your mind, meditate, get drunk. The gospel says instead, no, you can be joyous by being filled with the spirit because the spirit doesn't make you forget reality. The spirit makes you remember and see reality. Then you can face 
death. Then you don't need to deny or distract yourself. Then you can face life head on. If you cling on to what Jesus is saying here, seek me, abide in my word, you will never see or taste death. And if this is our motto, friends, we're going to live an amazingly passionate and courageous almost reckless lives because we're no longer afraid of death. We're no longer afraid of the things that the world are afraid of. We're no longer seeing the world as the way the world sees the world because we understand, friends, that we no longer live for ourselves. If death is no longer a worry, if you're no longer anxious, you're no longer fearful of death, then can you live your life in a way where that shows itself to be true? That death isn't the final say, Can you live your life not wasting it upon things that don't matter? Can you live your life understanding that there was one who was life for you? Can you live your life not denying the reality, friends, that Jesus right now is calling out in mercy to you and to me the way he is now calling out in mercy to his enemies? Because he's not claiming this, friends, in front of people who adore him or love him. He is saying this to who? People who are about to scorn him. People who've called him a demon. He's saying this to you and to me, his enemies. No greater love is this. That he will lay down his life for people who scorn him. As they're picking up stones, as they're calling him a demon, Jesus is saying, trust and abide in my word and you would never seek or see or taste death. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Let me, let me close with two stories as we close this climactic chapter. If you understand that your life is not your own, if you understand that Jesus had purchased your life, if you have seen that death is not your end, if you know that your life was purchased and therefore you Understand your suffering here is but a momentary affliction, that you are are free now to live your life to the fullest, that no longer are you bounded by a slavery to the fear of death, to the anxieties of this world. You can live your life recklessly. Reckless, that is not before the eyes of God, but recklessly before the world. The world will tell you, secure your treasures on earth. Make sure that you have a good future. Make sure that you invest in the right things. But if this is truly true, friends, you can live your life in a way that the world will find bewildering. The world will find utterly confusing. The world will find nonsensical. Because you will not throw yourself upon the Lord and say, Lord, do whatever you want with me. This life is but a mist. This life is but a vapor. And I will never taste death. Two stories. One is about a friend of mine named Cam. He, um, I got to know him in, in Edinburgh while I was doing my PhD studies over there. Cam had adopted a child, and this child was born out of uh, the sin of prostitution. Out of wedlock, the child didn't know where his father came from. The father probably doesn't know that he existed unwanted by his mother, ignored and completely hidden from his true father, Cam and his 
wife chose to adopt him. Amidst all the people who say, this is not a good investment. This doesn't make any sense. What does that do to your personal life? Are you gonna invest your time, your family, your energy to this child? Will you invest, in other words, your life to a story of redemption, to claiming that this boy's life is not defined by his parents, but now defined by a new spiritual family? What motivates that kind of decision? What motivates the kind of decision that can say, I will adopt this boy because my life is not my own. Because my life is brief. Because I will never taste death. What can motivate that kind of joy? But not the gospel. Another story, a man named Moses, not the Moses of the Bible. A man named Moses in Washington, a friend of mine as well, he was married a few years ago. He um, was, uh, got to know him. Actually, uh, uh, through my seminary years, he spent his life with, um, with a church and his wife, devoting his studies. He devoted a master's thesis and all of his time learning about North Korea and the North Korean refugee situation because he understands that's his mission. And I asked him one day, okay, that's really cool. And we talked about that for a while. And I asked him, okay, time to talk about something a little bit less serious. Maybe how did you and your wife meet? You know, how did that come about? Why did you guys get married? What is it that attracted you to one another? And his words were pretty stunning. And I won't remember it. I mean, I won't, I won't forget this. I will always remember it. It was through a Facebook message. And I still remember the exact words. I married her because she would not let me forget that God has called me to the North Koreans. She won't let me run away from that mission. That's why she married her. That's why the attraction happened. That's what the center of the relationship is, that Jesus Christ had redeemed, and because they would never taste death. They could throw themselves to the lives of other people, forsaking their own identities, forsaking their own well-being. For some people, that is utter insanity, dangerous, reckless, prodigous. What can motivate that kind of relationship? What can motivate that kind of mission? Is that how you live your life? Do you see your work? Do you make your decisions on the basis of the fact that you know that your life is not your own? That you would never taste death? Do you live seeing reality for what it is? That you will live forever. You will live forever. You will rejoice. So why worry? Can you now throw yourself to the mission that God has given you the mission of the church, whether it be to North Korean refugees, whether it be in the form of adoption, whether it be in small acts of faithfulness in children's ministry or in your own families, understanding that your life is not your own, you will never taste death. And you were once of the devil and now you are with the great I am 
rejoice. Live your life accordingly. Let's pray. Father, in this account in merely 11 verses, you've shown us the great love with which you have loved us. That though we were of below, you've called us to rejoice with Abraham, above, treated as saints, made saints. Your spirit is now in us, and now we can face the world, no longer evading reality, no longer denying reality, no longer distracting ourselves as if we need to run away from something, Lord God. Instead, we can tackle the anxieties and fears and, and brokenness of this world head on, realizing that our death is not our destiny. Father, help us. Throw ourselves into your kingdom. Throw yourself to the mission. Help us understand that our life is not our own. Death is not our destiny. So we can live reckless, extravagant, incredulous lives before you and before the world, witnessing that our relationships, our lives, our identities, Lord God, point to you as monuments of mercy. Help us throw down the shackles of this world and the so-called comforts that the devil will throw at us. Sustain us in your love and in your spirit. Secure us in this identity. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand to our feet.